So like Eric mentioned during announcements, this week was GA, and when we were figuring out several months ago whether we was gonna go to GA or not, I made the mistake of agreeing to preach the Sunday after that week so that he wouldn't have to. And so, um, and I, I, the reason I say I made that mistake is because uh, um, I, um, I appreciate the difference in our offices that he is a teaching elder um, is equipped and called to preach God's word. As a ruling elder, my teaching sort of gifts and responsibilities, I believe, complement Eric's, but are different. And so this is not, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, the aspect of teaching that uh, I'm, I'm equipped to do or I'm particularly gifted at. So I, I say that by way of honest confession as well as advanced apology for the violence that I'm about to do to God's word, okay? Um, so why don't, uh, why don't we pray before we get started, especially before I get started. That's always a really good thing. Gracious God in heaven, uh, thank you that uh, you, the unknowable God, have revealed yourself to us. By your spirit, Father, come and reveal yourself to us this day that we might know you more, that we might love you more, that we might be transformed in the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So um, I'm today going to preach on Psalm 139. For those of you that kind of have talked to me about different things over the last couple of years, the Psalms have been a part of the scriptures that I've spent a lot of time in in the last couple of years. Um, it's obviously the great prayer book of the church. Um, lots of the folks that whose um, writings I have always gone to in terms of understanding the scriptures have a particular affection for the Psalms, and that's what led me. I, I don't know. For me, I'm a, I'm a guy who spends way too much time in my head, and I think what I needed in the Psalms was the more emotional connection to the truth of who God was, that I need that help, and that um, there is the beauty and the poetry of the Psalms that forces even somebody who spends all his time in his head like me to more engage his heart actively with regards to who God is and, and how he's revealed himself. Um, I would also encourage those of you who are oriented completely different from me and who are much more comfortable in your emotions and spending time in your emotions and living in your emotions, the Psalms are a beautiful book to go there as well. So as much as the Psalms are for, you know, a hard-hearted, thick-headed person like me. They're for those of you who are more soft-hearted as well, because it really is. It's the great prayer book of the church. Um, all the prayers in the Psalms are offered by, in, and through Jesus Christ, and therefore good for us to leverage. And um, I'll quote here what Calvin said about the Psalms. Um, he says he's been accustomed to call this book, uh, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. So all the emotions of human life are reflected in the Psalms for, for us and for our good. So it's a gift from God um, as a means to personally engage with him in prayer and most specifically emotionally. And I think that part of the mystery of the Psalms is that we know the God of the Bible obviously because he reveals himself in the scriptures by the Spirit. But that, that self-same God invites us in the Psalms to enter into coming to know him in an emotional context for everyday life. 
opening ourselves up personally through our emotions, and God opening himself up to us in revealing himself to us in that process. The Psalms are a wonderful gift for us working through our intimacy with God, both individually and corporately. So uh, I'm going to read Psalm 139, uh, written by David, the second king of Israel. Um, Throughout my comments here, I'll be relying pretty heavily on a book that has helped me in the study of the Psalms by uh, Bruce Walkey and James Houston, The Psalms as Christian Worship, a historical commentary. Um, Hard book to read for me, especially not having been uh, theologically trained, but um, really valuable, and hopefully you'll you'll, uh, hear that. So why don't I just, I'll read the psalm. So if you want to open your Bible and read along with me, it's a good long one. So settle in. I've got about an hour and a half worth here, so um, if you need to go, go ahead. (laughs) To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, They are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord.
So the overall structure of this psalm is a petition psalm, although the structure's a little unusual. Um, and like I said, it's been helpful for me to study the psalms because I'm, I'm not somebody who ever really spent any time studying poetry or rhetoric or structure of language or things like that. So this has been incredible. The, the whole work of studying the psalms has always been valuable to me. But the, the sequence within this psalm is a little unusual. There's an address in verse 1. Verse, up through verse 12, there's a, a section of confidence. It swings to praise in verses 13 through 18. Then there's a lament right in the middle, which feels a little jarring in 19 to 22. And then a final petition at the end in 23 to 24. In general, it's you know 24 verses. Think of it as four separate stanzas with six verses to a stanza in terms of how the poem is structured. Um, so as we move through the Psalms, the through, through the poetic statements, um, all of the nature about who God is is presented here in a very personal context. There's incredible doctrinal and theological truth about who God is here, but it's presented from a very personal context. Um, the movement back and forth between an eternal God and a single person presents a whole series of oxymorons in this, in this psalm. There's a whole bunch of statements here that, if you take them apart, they shouldn't go together in the same sentence. They make no sense. Um, and to a certain extent, it, that's, I'll, I'll tease it up by saying it, it's somewhat summed up by, think of what's said in the address in the beginning and then towards the end. In the beginning, he says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me, past tense. You know all there is about me. And then the explosive kind of petition in, in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. I started by saying you know me, and I end by pleading for you to know me. And there's a whole bunch of things just like that in, in between of this, in, in this psalm. So let's, let's start digging in and having fun. Um, so first part of the psalm. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up and when I, when I sit down and rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So in the first six verses here, what you have is a clear picture of, of the theological idea of God's omniscience. He knows everything. Right? So we use the theological term omniscience to describe what this psalm is describing here. He knows, God knows everything. right? But it's not given as a fact placed here in how he addresses God in prayer, but rather simply saying God knows everything. He expounds on it by using this, um, this uh, word structure called a merism, where you take two contrasting ideas and they're put in the same sentence to convey the whole to convey the totality of things. So when he says, you know my, when I sit up and when I rise up, he's saying, you basically know everything about me, everything I do. You, you, when you search out my path and my lying down, you know all my activities. You know where I am when I'm standing, when I'm moving around, and when I'm lying down. You know what I'm doing when I'm moving and when I'm not moving. So it's, it's, not, it's not meant, it's, it's meant to, com, com, to kind of convey the totality of what God knows about us, right? Um, these contrasting words, um, my path, my moving, my lying down, my sleeping, there's a clear statement here that God knows what you're doing in everyday life. But in verse 3, you start to see the knowledge described becomes more active, more personal. You search out my moving and my lying down. You know all my ways. The knowing here, the discerning here is real similar to the phrase, the, the winnowing 
that's used, that the winnowing language that's used in the New Testament, this, the separating out of the wheat from the chaff, it's, it's, a much, it's much deeper than just he just sees it. It's he's taking it apart. He's searching it. It's a much richer kind of active searching that God is doing in these phrases. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So since God knows so much about our movement and where we are, it would make sense that we would know what we're saying at the same time. But here he goes farther and says he even knows our intentions before we say the words. You can use this in either way. He can, you can either say before you speak, he knows what you're saying, or you can use it as even if I didn't say it, he still knows what I'm thinking. Right? The intention of this both of those uses can be used here for that, for that concept. So perhaps as much as some of us would like to think we're getting really good at keeping our mouth shut in circumstances and not saying things out loud that can be um, painful and discouraging and sinful, yes, that's great. Continue to do that. Controlling your tongue is absolutely a beautiful thing. But God knows what you were going to say before you said it. Um, those who have... Uh, so, yeah, I think I covered that one. Um, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So here's what Calvin says about this verse. You're surrounded. God's hand is up on you. You can't move a hair's breadth without him knowing it. Does that sound a little unnerving? A little concerning? A little frightening? Yeah. Some anxiety actually starts to creep into the language here, intentionally. Um, we can't make a move without God knowing you there. And then on the basis of all that, that anxiety, that low-grade fear kicks into, um, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot, it is high, I cannot attain it. Conveying here, obviously, awe, respect, yeah, and even fear. As Watkin Houston explain it, the word inaccessibly high here is most often used in the Old Testament to, to, is a military term describing a fortress of impregnability and security, something that if you're standing on the outside of, you have no chance of taking down. Um, though the metaphors in 5 and 6 can be interpreted as very beneficial for us, the predominant usage connotes hostility. So implicit in David's response to this beautiful, all-knowing, all-powerful God is this recognition that that's a little scary. He's there everywhere. The qualifier, I do not have the power to scale, it really completes the thought. God's knowledge is being Im imaged as a cliff that even a warrior of David's caliber is absolutely no match for. God knows us. Knowledge of what this means is more than we can understand. And a faithful response is not trying harder to understand it, get a bigger ladder to scale the heights, but confess to our inability to comprehend and confess awe at a God who could be this. The anxiety of the prior stanza comes into clearer view when we move into the second set of stanzas now. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Um, at this point, I'd like Sarah and all the kids to come up and sing. The So what song would you guys sing at this point? Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence where is God yeah you guys sing that pretty much every week right so Sarah and the kids you guys want to get up here and spend 20 minutes saving me from continuing through the next couple pages um, 
every week you, you as kids sing that beautiful truth of that God is everywhere. So this next stanza is dealing with God's omnipresence, his, that God really is everywhere. Um, the question posed here is, so although the picture is painted of his omnipresence, the question posed here is, but where can I go to get away from him? Does that sound like the faithful question that a, a covenant believer of God should even be asking himself in a prayer that's recorded in Scripture? Where can I go to get away from him? And the questions, again, are answered here in a set of merisms. Um, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So again, that's the, that encompasses the entirety of the vertical nature of God's presence, right? If I go all the way up to heaven, God's there. Obviously, that's, of course, where he'd be. It's kind of shocking. If I go to Sheol, the place of the dead, God is there too. So that, again, that merism incorporates the entire vertical nature of, of God's omnipresence. And then it flips in the next verse to the horizontal nature. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the wings of the morning representing the east and the sea representing the west, you just kind of think about where Israel was and where it was located as far as they were concerned. The sea was west and the sun came up in the east. And so these, the, the image pictured here is east and west. doesn't matter where I go, God's going to be there. So if you travel for work or pleasure, if you've moved across town, if you've moved across the state or the country or across the world, or if you're thinking about doing those things, um, or if you plan to do those things, or don't even know that those things are in your future, you, like David, know that God is there. You can't run from him. The confession now shifts from anxiety to expressing trust in God's all-encompassing presence. So here you get, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Obviously, the phrase lead me and right hand shall hold me here suggests God's presence safely guides us. This is different than the hemming in used in the, in the prior stanza. Whether geographically in the horizontal dimensions of all of life or even vertically, whether we ascend into heaven or fall into darkness, God leads and his right hand holds us fast. This changes the feeling from being the, from the hemmed in in the first stage, in the end of the first stanza, to being led or even protected. So as much as the wings of the dawn and pictures light and life and goodness, so in the next verses we see even darkness. In darkness God sees all. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. But darkness is not simply the absence of light, as you might think about it in our 21st century usage of it. Darkness in the Bible has a quality all of its own, and it's usually a nature that is hostile to life. Um, so that even if we descend into darkness, even if we cannot escape that darkness and cannot see, whether literally with our eyes or even spiritually in darkness, we can confess like David here does, even in darkness, Lord, you are there, and that darkness is light to you. Now, there's a lot here that we can, we could, again, spend the next 45 minutes talking about emotional and spiritual darkness. Um, I know that there are, you know, there's lots of people I know and love that experience the weight of their fears, their sorrows, even their depression, and that that weight can be a darkness um, in your emotion, in your mind, and in your spirit, around and within you. 
and we've, you know, we've spent a good time on this topic, and, and if you need help or support, get it, right? So let's be clear about that. If, if this image of the darkness for you is a, is a place that uh, you struggle with or, or have issues with, um, get the help you need. But know also that God sees even in the darkness. Um, and as hard as it may sound, see him, especially in that darkness. The next set of oxymorons, um, the hidden ways lay open. In verse 13, for you form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The picture is painted here of what's referred to as God's omnificence, his unlimited creative power. Again, Walking Houston say, this stanza represents God as a skillful weaver of embroidered cloth, dedicated to creating his magnum opus. His studio is the dark chamber of a mother's womb. And God's creative power is personal. Think of David's statement here. I am created me. The great I am created you. That lays the foundation for the active work as the text turns to, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Beloved, you are a member of the uh, pinnacle of God's creation, a member of the race that is the pinnacle of God's creation. I hope we can appreciate what it means in our lives to see how God not only formed us in our mother's womb, but also his wonderful works in you that he has used to sustain you in your bodies, in your life, and throughout your life. You know, this, these are the places in the Psalms where as you take these in personal devotional time, you could just head off in that direction and spend 20 minutes thinking about all the ways in which God has worked in your life based on where you are now. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Yes, the God who made you knows you, and he knows your future. Not in some abstract idea of what a human being in the 21st century will, 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 happen, will, will, you know, will go through, but you as a person and as an individual with a specific frame, unique to you. And God knew all your days even before you were born. Apply the truth of this psalm to your own life and circumstances. Take the phrases here and expand them into the details of your life. God's conscious care for us is completely beyond our understanding. Hence the next oxymoron. The innumerable is rare. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they would be more than sand. God's thoughts to us are not bound by our ideas of supply and demand. In our economics, rare things are valuable, right? Uh, you can, uh, I think there's six, from what I understand, there are six versions of William Shakespeare's signature in existence, and one of those might net you $3 million or an actual full two edition set of the first edition Gutenberg Bible might get you 25 or $30 million. In our world, the rare things are valuable. And most common things have no value. So what would each of you pay for a single grain of sand from an Oregon beach? 
whatever you're willing to pay. I've got a bunch on the floor of my van that I'm willing to sell with you, to sell to you after church immediately, because I've already been paid to haul that stuff around the state for the last two years. The idea that God's thoughts towards each of us is unique, one of a kind, and yet without number. Any concept of supply and demand economics that we bring to this are totally blown up. Infinite rarity describes God's thoughts towards you. And then the psalmist wakes up. I awake. So after these three stanzas of beautiful meditations on the all-knowing, all-present, all-creator God, the psalmist screams, I wake up. But when he says, I wake up, moving from a dreamlike state on all these meditations, he comes to, to confront the reality of the circumstances. But with this waking comes, first and foremost, the recognition that I'm still with you. The last stanza or six verses move from the three confessions about God's knowledge, presence, and creative care to a wish regarding the wicked and a petition regarding himself. Here's the wish. Oh God, that you would just slay the wicked. O men of blood, depart from me. The wish that God slay the wicked is most unusual here. Not because it's jarring against necessarily of what shows up here, but it's actually a little out of order because typically a prayer and a lament psalm asks God to deliver us from our enemies, maybe even do some really nasty things to them, um, and prays that God will punish them, like Psalm 59. Psalm 59 is a great example of that. This lament, though, starts from the personal perspective of the impact of the wicked on David. Wakes up, he recognizes he's, there are bloodthirsty people who wish to kill him, and he's like, God, I wish you would just kill him, and I could get away from him. Now, David certainly had his share of uh, life-threatening situations. Um, Goliath, Saul, uh, the Philistines, the Amorites, even David's own son, Absalom. But David here narrows in on his definition of those who are bloodthirsty, who would, who would you know, merely seek, who, who he flips to his definition of what the wicked are. They are not those who are, just out, who are out to kill David, but those who oppose God. David is well acquainted with those who would kill him. A list most of us would probably have a hard time coming up with, I hope. But David could easily generate at any point in his life an entire list of people who actively wanted him dead. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. So he flips from, these are bloodthirsty people who want to kill me to, no, the real problem here is that they're against you, God. So next, a pair of rhetorical questions that David has to ask himself in light of this and their answers. 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? In the center of this lament, David focuses first on the wicked's hatred and opposition of God, and then on the impact their hatred and opposition to God has on him personally. So he flips to the next set of questions. Do I hate those who hate you? Do I oppose those who oppose you? 
These questions set up the continuation for David of what does it mean for him personally if the wicked oppose a God who so personally cares for and watches over him. I am with God. If the wicked hate God, if the wicked oppose God, then, verse 22, I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David so identifies with the God who knows and cares for him that he has no choice here but to hate those who hate God. No choice but to, those, but to oppose those who oppose God. Not out of self-interest here, though in his life those who opposed God also wanted David dead. But as if he had no choice, it's only logical that if they hate and oppose God, this God who so loves and cares for me, I have no choice but to hate and oppose them as well. If the God described in all the prior stanzas is as wonderful and powerful as this psalm says, and God's care is so direct and personal, what response does David have but to connect personally with God and oppose his enemies? These seem like hard verses for us as modern Christians. But next, instead of petitioning God for strength to destroy his enemies or a prayer of deliverance from his enemies, we get a surprising request. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Joaquin Houston again here described this dramatic shift. David's appeal for honesty in his confession is what will rout the wicked. His abrupt shift from hot indignation against others turns to an urgent plea that God assess the truth of his own confessions. Instead of irrationally fighting against God's active omniscience, he lays his heart bare to Iam's x-ray, to x-ray his hidden self. Unlike the wicked that hate God, blaspheme God, oppose God, David surrenders himself to God's all-knowing, all-seeing, creating, and sustaining power. He asks the God who knows everything to search him and know him. He surrenders himself to a personal intimacy with God that defies his limited, sinful human comprehension. This surrender to God searching his heart is his prayer for the opposition to the wicked. The wicked men who seek to oppose God and the unseen wickedness in his own heart. The wicked's false and disingenuous speech contrasts very sharply with David's honest and genuine speech here. Namely, he realizes that even his confessed zeal for God, God must rule and decide whether it's true and right. This now completes the overall oxymoron of the psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. And now, search me, O God, and know my heart. David asked the God who already knows everything that there is to know about him, to search him and know him. Beloved, God gives us this psalm not because uh, he needs help in searching us out and getting to know us, but to draw us to himself in searching us and knowing us that we might know him. Here the psalm combines active knowing with spiritual leading. 
and to see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. To search another person's interior spiritual life is impossible. And I would say, I would agree with David here, we can't even be certain of our own motives. Harriet Lovett here comments on this, um, on this verse. His own integrity is not sufficient for this. His own ways could, could, in fact, carry him toward pain and destruction. Only if Yahweh will lay his hand on him to guide him, sustain him, and control him utterly can the poet hope that his ways conform to Yahweh's ways. Beloved, God knows you perfectly. He knows you better than you know yourself, and that's a very good thing. He perfectly knows you, and in his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he has applied that perfect knowledge of you to a perfect salvation for you in his Son. Confess through this psalm that God knows everything. He knows all about you. And beloved, uh, as much as we, like David, might express anxiety about what we confess is true about God, anxiety that we might fear what God knows about us, anxiety about what we don't want others to know about us, anxiety about what we don't even know about ourselves. We can actually take comfort and encouragement in our lack of comprehension, even in our anxiety. And by faith in who God is, ask him to search you and lead you in the way everlasting. Um, In this, God reveals himself. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way everlasting. So may God lead all of us in him now and forever. Amen.